Hamlet Podcast, Episode 42. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Hanrity. As promised, we're going to cover another entire scene in this episode. This is the final scene of Act 3, and it comes as a kind of a turning point, introducing many of the themes and anxieties that will haunt the remainder of the play. We've just had this almost impossible scene with the witches and their goddess Hecate, threatening mankind with consequences for being too self-confident. Now we see another figure emerge from the background, and this is Lennox. We aren't meeting him for the first time here. He's been present at several of the play's key moments already. He was on the battlefield in Act One, the stage directions mention him there, and arriving with Duncan at the Macbeth's castle. He arrives with Macduff the morning after the king is murdered, and chats awkwardly with the porter while Macduff goes to try and wake the king. Over the course of the next few scenes and acts, however, he moves away from Duncan and Macduff and into Macbeth's good graces. By the time of the banquet, he's sitting right beside Macbeth. It's Lennox that encourages Macbeth to sit down, even though Banquo's ghost is in his seat. Clearly, we are supposed to interpret that Lennox has risen through the ranks, and fast. Now, intriguingly, we find him in conversation with a lord. Shakespeare doesn't give this lord a name, perhaps because the point of the scene is just to give us a glimpse of what any or all lords in Scotland are now thinking. Even though the play is short, for a Shakespearean tragedy, we get a sense that time is passing even more than we think. Already we got the dark hint from Macbeth that he's had enough time in power to recruit and dispatch a spy to the home of every one of his thanes. Now we get the sense, from the way Lennox speaks, that the word has had time to spread, that Banquo was murdered. As is so often the case, Lennox and the Lord start the scene in mid-conversation. Lennox has quite a long bit of text, so as ever I'll read the whole thing and then we'll take a closer look at it. My former speeches have but hit your thoughts, which can interpret further. Only, I say, things have been strangely born. The gracious Duncan was pitied of Macbeth. Marry, he was dead and the right valiant Banquo walked too late, whom you may say, if it please you, Fleance killed, for Fleance fled. Men must not walk too late. Who cannot want the thought how monstrous it was for Malcolm and for Donalbane to kill their gracious father? Damned fact! How it did grieve Macbeth! Did he not straight, in pious rage, the two delinquents tear that were the slaves of drink and thralls of sleep? Was not that nobly done? Aye, and wisely too, for twould have angered any heart alive to hear the men deny it. So that, I say, he has borne all things well, and I do think that had he Duncan's sons under his key, as, and please heaven, he shall not, they should find what were to kill a father. So should Fleance. But peace. For from broad words, and because he failed his presence at the tyrant's feast, I hear Macduff lives in disgrace. Sir, can you tell where he bestows himself? It can be 
quite the challenge to pin this fellow down. Is Lennox operating as a spy for Macbeth? Is he trying to sound out this lord to see where his loyalties might lie? What's brilliant about this piece of writing is that Shakespeare manages to show us the kind of double speak that must have been essential in a time of such divided loyalties. Lennox begins with a hint about what's been discussed before. My former speeches have but hit your thoughts, which can interpret further. Only I say things have been strangely born. The best way to get someone to trust you or agree with you is to make them think they're right. He's starting immediately with this sort of tactic. But I've been saying earlier, my former speeches align with what you're thinking yourself. You can interpret however you see fit. All I'm saying, he says, is that things have been strangely born. Things happened, shall we say, unusually. Lennox is very cagey and treads carefully. The gracious Duncan was pitied of Macbeth. Marry, he was dead. And the right valiant Banquo walked too late, whom you may say, if it please you, Fleance killed, for Fleance fled. Men must not walk too late. What Lennox is saying drips with irony. The gracious Duncan, of whom Macbeth was so fond, is all of a sudden found dead. The valiant Banquo was out too late and wound up dead. If you like, he's saying, you can believe that Fleance killed him, since Fleance then ran away. Some productions like to heighten the irony here with a reminder of how young or small Fleance was, to compound the impossibility that a boy would kill his own father, or be able to. And so, the conclusion to this? Obviously men should not go out at night. Lennox is ruefully talking through the murders Macbeth has committed, without actually suggesting that he was responsible. He continues this vein of suggestion that running away is a sign of guilt by mentioning Duncan's sons. Who cannot want the thought how monstrous it was for Malcolm and for Donalbane to kill their gracious father? Damned fact! How it did grieve Macbeth! Did he not straight, in pious rage, the two delinquents tear that were the slaves of drink and thralls of sleep? Again, this is very ironic. Who cannot but think it was terrible of Malcolm and Donalbane to kill their father, since this is clearly the narrative that Macbeth has put out? Four centuries before our own time and its bizarre assaults on the truth, Lennox here also uses the word fact as something that is at once concrete but also untrustworthy. Macbeth may want the world to think it a fact. A damned fact, indeed, that the sons killed their father, but we know perfectly well that that's not true. It's an alternative fact, shall we say. But in this official narrative, it grieved Macbeth, grieved him so much that he stormed into the chamber in this pious rage and killed the two guards, the slaves of drink and thralls of sleep. Lennox is laying on the irony very thick. If these men were that drunk and that unconscious, how could they have killed the king? All of this retelling is sounding out the Lord. Lennox now asks, Was not that nobly done? Aye, and wisely too, for it would have angered any heart alive to hear the men deny it. This is particularly bleak. He's saying Macbeth slaughtered the guards before they could even wake up and deny their guilt, 
since even the sound of their paltry denials would have enraged anyone alive beyond reason, as if this is somehow cause enough to execute them. Lennox is getting giddy here, buzzed on all this double speak, so that, I say, he has borne all things well, and I do think that had he Duncan's sons under his key, as, and please heaven he shall not, they should find what were to kill a father, so should Fleance. He's saying that Macbeth has done everything right, and for his money, if Malcolm and Donald Bain, or indeed Fleance, found themselves under Macbeth's roof, or his key, they'd learn pretty fast the kind of consequences there are for killing one's father. It really feels like Macbeth has spread the word that in both instances his victims were in fact murdered by their sons. It's a smart move. If everyone suspects you of killing your father, it's a lot harder to mount a challenge against the king. So what's the point of this weirdly phrased recap from Lennox? Are we to imagine that he's absolutely on Macbeth's side? Or is he starting to realign his loyalty? Nothing he says here could be read as expressly disloyal to Macbeth. But it is so heavily ironic that it also rather undermines this official narrative. He's equivocated his way through all of this because he's looking for information. But peace. For from broad words, and cause he failed his presence at the tyrant's feast, I hear Macduff lives in disgrace. Sir, can you tell where he bestows himself? Lennox wants to know what's happening with Macduff. Lest we forget, we've had hints thrown our way throughout the play so far that Macduff is equal but different to Macbeth. He wasn't at the feast, as we know, and now Lennox is angling for more information. From broad words, or common knowledge perhaps, he's heard that Macduff is living in disgrace. He's in Macbeth's bad books. And Lennox wonders if the Lord knows what he's doing, or where he might be. The Lord now answers, also at length. The son of Duncan, from whom this tyrant holds the due of birth, lives in the English court, and is received of the most pious Edward with such grace that the malevolence of fortune nothing takes from his high respect. Thither Macduff is gone to pray the Holy King, upon his aid, to wake Northumberland and warlike Seward, that, by the help of these, with him above to ratify the work, we may again give to our tables meat, sleep to our nights, free from our feasts and banquets bloody knives, do faithful homage, and receive free honours, all which we pine for now and this report hath so exasperate the king that he prepares for some attempt of war. I love speeches like this one, little glimpses that Shakespeare often gives us, wise or rueful words from the mouth of an anonymous observer. They happen so often, and they are little nuggets of gold worth panning for in every play. This lord describes how Malcolm, the son of Duncan, whose hereditary title of King Macbeth has taken, is living at the English court. It is absolutely huge that he calls Macbeth a tyrant. Until now, we've seen Macbeth's rise to power and what he's done to become king. But now we're seeing his tyrannical behaviour and the chilling things he's doing to preserve his power. In short, 
the actions of a tyrant. It's a new word in the play, but of course it was Lennox who said it first. The tyrant's feast, he called it. And now the Lord answers this, calling Macbeth a tyrant outright. Admittedly, it could be a nod to Macbeth having seized power in a moment when the normal transfer was interrupted, but the word nearly always means someone who's ruling with cruelty rather than reason. Here it feels like an agreement for the Lord to use it so soon after Lennox did. It's a clear indication of where this Lord's loyalties lie. He continues his story, explaining that Malcolm is at the court of pious King Edward in England. Not only that, he's been received with such grace that the malevolence of fortune, rather than, say, the act of killing his father, nothing takes from his high respect. The Lord is basically saying that nobody in England, not even King Edward the Confessor himself, believes that Malcolm is the murderer. He's been welcomed as the legitimate heir to the Scottish throne, and in this high respect hasn't been compromised by whatever rumours or lies Macbeth has spread. More interesting yet, that's where Macduff has also gone. He's hoping that King Edward will rouse some other nobles and rally them to the Scottish cause. These are Northumberland and Seward, names that will be important in the remaining half of our play. The Lord telling us this story is hoping that these men, helped by capital H.I.M. above, will prevail and restore order in Scotland. Now Shakespeare does something really brilliant and has the Lord all but pray for everything that Scotland currently lacks. He hopes that we may again give to our tables meat, sleep to our nights, free from our feasts and banquets bloody knives, do faithful homage and receive free honours all which we pine for now. That's a decent enough list of things to hope for, but what's brilliant about it is that these are all the things that Macbeth himself has been lacking. Just a few scenes earlier he was defiant in his cry, but let the frame of things disjoint, both the worlds suffer, ere we will eat our meal in fear and sleep in the affliction of these terrible dreams that shake us nightly. That's what's happened. Food and sleep have both been compromised. Even the Great Feast was a complete disaster. Now the Lord is hoping that Scotland can return to well-stocked tables, good nights of sleep and feasts and banquets free of bloody knives. A Scotland where people can live good lives of faithful homage, where they can receive free honours. All of which they pine for now. But word of this sad state has reached England, he assures Lennox, and this report hath so exasperated their king that he prepares for some attempt of war. Edward is their king. The Lord isn't talking about Macbeth here. Now, some editions of the text may read the king, leaving the possibility that it's Macbeth that is preparing for some attempt of war, having heard of these English betrayals. But the folio does read their king, and I think it makes better sense in the context of all that the Lord has explained. Northumberland and Seward will answer Macduff's call, and even Edward will send some help. This tiny little speech, barely 16 lines of it, has shifted the entire world of the play on its axis. Now we know that there is dissent in Scotland. 
that Macduff, rather than just perhaps disliking Macbeth, is actively campaigning in England to rally support to put Malcolm, the rightful heir, onto the Scottish throne, and that the King of England himself is sympathetic to the cause and will attempt to help in the fight against this tyrant. Lennox now asks if the Lord knows what Macbeth has been doing. He asks, sent he to Macduff? And the Lord has a startling answer. He did, and with an absolute sir, not I, the cloudy messenger turns me his back, and hums, as who should say, you'll rue the time that clogs me with this answer. Macbeth has sent to Macduff, but the latter has responded with an absolute sir, not I. Macduff is openly defying Macbeth and saying he's not on his side. Again, this lord is really delivering the news in this, his one and only scene. God help the poor messenger who had to deliver this cloudy answer to Macbeth. As we shall see later in the play, Macbeth does not respond kindly to those who bring him bad news. Now Lennox responds, And that well might advise him to a caution, to hold what distance his wisdom can provide. Some holy angel fly to the court of England and unfold his message ere he come, that a swift blessing may soon return to this our suffering country under a hand accursed. It's hard to know whether Lennox is sincere or not here. What he says is that Macduff would be wise to keep his distance from Scotland now that he's defied Macbeth. That well might advise him to a caution to hold what distance his wisdom can provide. Lennox then prays that some holy angel, angels are messengers after all, might fly to the court of England and beat Macduff to it, so that by the time he reaches Edward's court, they'll already have prepared and be ready to be that swift blessing that might return to this country, suffering under Macbeth's cursed hand. The Lord agrees and says, I'll send my prayers with him. Do you think Lennox is sincere? Or is he just singing along to the Lord's tune to get information? Lennox is apparently Macbeth's humble servant still. Or is he a shrewd operator, adept at navigating survival in a totalitarian regime like this? He hasn't compromised his position with Macbeth like Macduff has. And indeed, he will appear with Macbeth in the next very important scene. For now, he and the Lord are done, and since this is the end of Act 3, so are we. Next time, we will be exploring one of the most famous scenes of the play when we rejoin the witches and get to see them brewing their magic. So be sure to have your cauldron ready this time next week as we cook up a recipe more famous perhaps than any other. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me then.